Colossians 3, verses 18, all the way to the first verse of chapter 4. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord, Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Okay. So, Paul has moved in the letter. His last chapter, last verses we, we, we spoke about, he was talking about this glory, the worship, the corporate gathering, the body of the, of the church, and how that's to look and function. And now he turns towards relationships in the household, specifically the household of faith. What do Christian homes look like? What do Christian relationships look like inside and outside of the home? Um, and what Paul does that is very interesting here is he doesn't... He, wait, he, not what he doesn't do. Let's say what he does do. The Greeks and the Stoics, all through history, all through their writings, you see that they speak about human relationships and say there's really only three sets of relationships that govern everything, and those are the ones you want to focus on. This summarizes human relationships. It's the husband and wife relationship, the parents and children, and then the slaves and masters, or your employer-employee. Those three relationships are the most vital for any society, said the Greeks and the Stoics, and if those are in order, so is society. And so what Paul does is he comes and he doesn't blow it up. Right? He doesn't say, hey, the world's got it all wrong. Instead he says, okay, the categories are fine, but you're doing things wrong. And so what he does, he says, what does it look like when you take the gospel and you massage it into those relationships. Rather than blowing them up, he's saying, no, no, what you need is renewal and transformation of those relationships, and it's the gospel that does it. And that it's through these Christian relationships, us interacting with one another and with others, that is how God reveals his goodness to the world and starts to do what we talk about a lot here, which is to identify the effects of sin in the world, um, arrest them, arrest the effects of sin, and then, if possible, reverse the effects. So he does that primarily through human relationships. And it's through those relationships that God is making all things new here. And, and in will eventually on is when he returns and make it perfect. So what we're going to look at here is this process Paul goes through here. And he says that God transforms human relationships, Christian relationships first and foremost, by directing us up, around, and then down. Okay? And you're going to see that in this passage as we go. So we were directed up, around and down. So let's go with up. And let's address, you know me, if you've been here for a while, you, you know we like here to address the very hard questions that are in scripture. And the first one that pops up when you talk, well, okay, maybe second, this is, this is a loaded passage. But one of the first ones that pops up anyway is, why doesn't Paul, or the Bible in general, say very plainly, masters, set free your slaves. Slavery is bad, abolish it. Why does the Bible not come out and say that directly? And you see a lot of gymnastics in the Christian church where they try to figure out to apologize for God. Don't do that. God doesn't need your apologies. Let's just address why is it that that question isn't. It's a very modern question, right? It wasn't really being asked in the ancient world. 
Um, but it, it's a modern one, and it's a fair one, not to mention the, the husbands and wives stuff, which I preached on in the fall, so I suggest you go back, but I'll also talk about it later. But when we're looking at the question of slavery, it's an important one. So let me just address it very brief, not briefly. I'm actually going to dwell for a minute. First, what does it even mean by slavery? See, when we think of slavery, we think of American hereditary chattel slavery. Okay? So American slavery, as you see in the movies and what we saw south of the border to us and in the British Empire as well, up until, well, 1863 when the Emancipation Proclamation in the States, and then 1865 when the war, Civil War ends, what you saw there was hereditary chattel slavery. And what it is is this. Humans, African Americans, African slaves, were chattel. They're property. And not only are they... So if they're property, it means that they can be treated as property. They had, so their labor did nothing to benefit themselves. They got no money for it. They didn't work for themselves. They worked solely for the good of the master. There was no benefit to them. There was no real rights for them. And by hereditary, it means if, those, if two slaves had a child, that child become, becomes a slave. It's hereditary. It's brutal, and it's very, very different than what the ancient world understood as slavery. In fact, it's unrecognizable. And so one of the hard parts we do today is if you're a skeptic or a non-believer, you see Paul saying, slaves, obey your masters, and you think, how the heck could they say that? Well, first, you have to get contextually into the, into the passage and realize you're not understanding what slavery is. So in the ancient world, and all through the Bible, and we'll talk very briefly here about what the Bible says about it, this is what it meant. It means, in fact, you'll see in the passage, it, it translates the word Greek that is doulos, where you get the word doula from, if you've ever had a, a, a helper, um, midwife sort of helper. It means, but it means bond servant. So in the ancient world, slavery usually occurred in this way. I have a debt I can't pay. So to pay that debt, I sign myself over to what they call indentured servitude. I sign myself over to the person that I owe money to, and we set out a time period. Okay, your debt is this, and you will have worked it off after X amount of years. And so I work to pay off my own debt. And in that way, first of all, I benefit because I'm paying off a debt. But there's also, um, there's much more to it, you see, because when you look at the Bible, some people say, well, the Bible supports slavery. In fact, a lot of terrible, terrible theology and terrible people use the Bible to promote slavery in the American South and many other places. And this is terrible exegesis, terrible theology, because when you look at Scripture, one of the wonderful and strange things about the Old Testament is it says, first, if you have people who have to sell themselves into debt, into slavery like this because they have debts, every seven years you must set them free. It doesn't matter if the debt is paid or not. You're, and if you, if you want to know more, listen again to a sermon I preached on Jubilee like two years ago at Christmas. But it was very simple. You have a debt. And if, you have, if every seven years they were to reset the calendar, reset the schedule and free all the slaves, and you, you sell yourself into slavery for two, year, two years before that time, well, then your master or the person you owe money to has to come up with a plan to say, okay, how are you going to pay this back in two years? Because uh, after three, I've got to let you go. So the plan in Scripture was to do that, to always, slavery should never be hereditary, should never be eternal. But here's another interesting thing. There's no evidence to suggest Israel ever, 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 ever observed the Jubilee. Why? Because it's real hard. But that was the Bible's claim. There should never be hereditary chattel slavery where you own the person. And here's another interesting fact. 
Did you know the Old Testament's pretty clear? If a slave is run away and you find that runaway slave, you are not to return him to his master. And the reason was, because if he's escaped, it's probably because he's been treated poorly and you don't send a slave back to where he's being treated poorly. And so you see how ignorant we can be when we talk about the Bible and slavery. We want to make the Bible sound so archaic and yet it's actually far more progressive and liberal and liberating than many of our modern laws, certainly more than our visa bills that hold us slaves for quite a long time legally, I might add. Right? So, this is the slavery we're talking about here. So Paul's speaking about that, but we still have the question, why doesn't he just say, just do away with it, forgive the debt? And there's a lot of nuance there. But there's, let, me, let me say this, there's a few things you see scholars saying. One says, well, it was futile, right? Paul, why would he say, get rid of political slavery in the world and, and legislative legal slavery when it would have done nothing? He would have just been you know, screaming in the middle of a wilderness. Nobody would have heard. That's true, but it doesn't mean you don't do it anyway, right? But the second thing some people have said, well, maybe Paul himself didn't actually understand yet because he's pretty new to Christianity, as brilliant as he is, as, as advanced as he is. Is it that they just haven't yet gone that far to determine what it means for all of these social, these social situations? Possible. But let me actually throw that all out and say this very plainly. The reason Paul doesn't call for slavery to end as far as legal slavery is because he's not, it's not his intent. He's doing something far better and far more impactful and powerful than even that. And I'll have to sustain that for you for a minute because that may sound odd. But he doesn't want to abolish slavery in the sense you're thinking. And I'll explain why because that may sound cold. It's not. It's brilliant. So let's talk about that for a minute. Before I get to the passage, and I have to mention this, do laws change people's hearts? This is a debate that's been raging in the legal world forever. I spent a lot of this week trying to learn it as best I could. I know there's lawyers in the room who probably know it better than me. But the general consensus, from what I can tell, is laws are vitally important. Vitally important. And although they can influence some social change, in general, even the most optimistic of legal scholars says they don't change hearts. Because laws themselves don't actually have the power to change hearts. One is a guy named Roscoe Pound. He was a legal scholar, and uh, he wrote probably about 60 or 70 years. I don't know exactly when he wrote this article. Um, and it was called Limits of Effective Legal Action. And this, this is pretty much consensus, what I'm reading. It's the same thing I saw in Harvard legal documents all through is this. Here's what he says. Human beings must, must execute them, laws, and there must be some mode of setting the individual in motion to do this above and beyond the abstract content of the rule and its conformity to an ideal justice or an ideal a social interest. Let me put that in layman's terms. He's saying, laws are very good, but laws cannot motivate because their laws have to be implemented and put into practice and enforced by humans. So the human needs a motivation beyond just the fact that the law is good. They need to have something that's drawing them and driving them to implement it. And this makes total sense because laws have no power to create or do anything on their own. So when an atheist or a skeptic comes and says, Carl, the world wasn't created by a god, it was created by the laws of nature. I ask them how a law can create anything. Because here's a law, here's a rule, that if I work out, fat will burn. But that law doesn't help me. The law isn't burning Carl's chub. It's not reducing my waistline. Because the law has no power of itself. What it requires is a motivated Carl to put the law in effect. And what then motivates me to put that law into effect? Heart attack? 
Something, something must motivate me. And so what Roscoe Pound is saying, what the legal system has been saying is laws are important and good. We must, as Christians, strive to have good, just laws. However, just laws alone cannot change the world. They can help. But what is required is something deeper. And what Pound says it is, is a motivation. Something motivating and setting the individual in motion above the abstract content of the law. And so if we only have laws, you see, this is what the world does. And we're going to talk in a second because you're going to see what Jesus says about this too. If we only have laws, we will follow them because of something that another lawyer, he's actually the professor of law at University of London, Anthony Allett, he says, what you do is it creates something called superficial conformity, meaning the law is made that I must use certain pronouns or I must behave a certain way. I don't agree with it, but because I want to simply avoid the censure or, or, or seek the favor of the government and the power, I will conform to it, but I don't actually believe it. Right? And this is common. It creates, it creates conformity without, without purpose, without a transformation of the heart. And here's the question. Why does this all matter? Why am I preambling this way? Because this is exactly what Paul is speaking about. In verse 22, he says, Bondservants, doulos, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So there were rules governing the slave-master life relationship, just like there are today with your employer and employee. I have rules with this church. Now, Paul's saying those are fine, but don't just obey them with eye service because you need a motivation that will actually cause you to, 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 to serve your master rightly because what he noticed, and it's, it's pretty straightforward, is this, and we still do it in our workplaces. He says what's happened in the, in the world was this. Slaves, you are only fulfilling your duty to the master because you have to and when he's looking. When they're looking, you're working, busy. Keep busy, master's looking. You know? And you do that because you're trying to either gain his favor or avoid his punishment. But, he says, the laws could change, but that's not going to change that because the laws have created the eye service. It's the laws that have created us to be people who just do the bare minimum. We work to rule, right? Just the bare minimum. And Paul's saying you can't do that if you're a Christian. Christians must work sincerely for the good of their master, not just to get, punish, to get uh, favor for themselves, because then they're working for themselves. It's selfish. Um, so, uh, sorry, I was going to make sure I'm not missing something. And here's why. Now, why is Paul doing this? Here's why he doesn't try to abolish slavery immediately. Because here's, put, a, put this thing on the, on the wall, this, this graphic of the laws. Laws, rightly so, and this is good, please, I, you have to understand the importance that Christian lawyers do for the church and for the world. Laws are wonderful, but they primarily and rightly govern horizontal relationships between men and women, people, right? That's what it does. That's the point. And Paul says, okay, that's fine. But what Paul is trying to do, what Jesus does, what the Bible is doing, what Christians are doing is this. They're saying the first relationship is not this, it's this one. It's primarily this. So his intent is not first and foremost to heal this relationship horizontally between workers and slaves and masters, employers. He's not a union rep. He is first saying, what, I'm here, what you must be repairing is this relationship first. And if this one is repaired, then all of those will be repaired. But if you invert them and change them, 
See, here's the challenge, though, right? Because with something like slavery or sex trafficking or drugs, all these things, you need legislation. You can't wait for the, horizontal, the vertical relationship to change. You must get good laws that bring justice and healing and wholeness and restoration to the world. So we need lawyers and Christian lawyers to be working hard for that. But just that won't heal it because you still have the root problem, which is the broken heart. And so Paul's saying, my first concern, church, world, is to fix the vertical one, because if that gets fixed, then all the rest will be fixed. And I know he is saying this, and you know he's saying this because of what he does in this passage. Look at what he does. He speaks about all the different relationships. I think I have a, a little graphic of all of the, the names. But he says, wives, submit as is fitting the Lord. Look what he does. He says, all of your relationships are now rooted in the fact that God is your master, not the other person, and not yourself. So wives, submit, why? As fitting the Lord. Children, obey. Why? Because it pleases God. Bond servants, serve. Why? Because you fear God. You're working for him, not for your master. Masters then. He even goes to the masters, which is absurd. Do you know that it would have been crazy for Paul to put any, any burdens on masters to, to treat their people right, which I'll talk about in a minute. But he does. He says, masters, you obey. Why? Why do you have to be just and fair with the people you employ? Because you have a, fa- a master as well. Everyone has a master, and this is the key. The key to all human relationships and Christian relationships is that Christ is Lord, you are not. And if he is Lord that governs all your relationships, then it will transform your relationships with yourself and with others, and we'll talk how he gets very specific about that in a minute. So this is what Paul's doing, but it's not just Paul. Then let's go to Jesus, because I want to make sure we see this is not just Paul's hobby horse. This is something rooted all through Scripture. When Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate in John 18, they're having a dialogue, and here's part of that dialogue. Pilate answered him, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world, from the world. He's saying very, it's so plain, right? He says, you know... Pilate, you have one way of doing things. The world, Rome, has one way. And that is this. If you want conformity, what you do is you use power. You make legislation only. You have the media say this is the way the world is. You have everything gearing towards, because you don't know how to transform a heart, so you coerce the heart. And that's the way of the world. You want Israel to bend to you, Rome, what do you do? Well, you crush them. And when you want something to change, you make a law. And Christ is saying it's not the way he does it. The people of his world won't fight that way because what he is doing is he's transforming the hearts and notice how impactful it is. Rome has all the power in the world, literally at this time. And what is their impact compared to Christ's impact on humanity? Christ transformed the hearts of 12 guys. And from there, the hearts have transformed of more and more and more. And by this very slow, slow process, not changing laws primarily, though it's good, he didn't, there was never legislation that said you must obey God, at least not scripturally. You don't see Christ saying that. And yet what he does is he transforms the heart because he knows if you transform the heart, you transform everything. And this is why we have hospitals and schools and orphanages and so many other things. It's because God was focused on changing the human, the vertical relationship first, to then impact the horizontal ones. And Jesus understood this. And so that's the first thing. The first way that God changes our, our relationships is he says, look up. Directs us up. First, we must fix this relationship. 
And then he says, now that that is fixed, now press and massage that truth into your relationships. And he uses those same categories. So let me use those three, the masters, slaves, husbands and wives, children and parents, and show how those are transformed. Even though it's out of order, I'll start with slaves and masters because we've been there, but then I'll move on to uh, spouses. So slaves and masters. This is the very radical thing that people may not like, and I understand why not. The truth of Christianity is this. When you become a Christian, you are free from everything, including your slavery. See, salvation is not simply salvation from your sins and little addictions. It's salvation from every master. Christ is now your master, so that no matter what the horizontal relationship looks like, it may be slavery in the ancient world, it may be a bad job you don't like, it may be health that is chaining you into a body that's nothing like your spirit. Whatever it is, God is saying, regardless of the horizontal, the moment you are saved, you are free. Because now your master is God. And so you no longer serve your master to, selfishly. You no longer love your spouse selfishly. But now you can love them because you don't need anything from them. I don't need my boss to give me income. Christ pays my bills because now I see he is Lord and not Redeemer Bible Church that signs my checks. Right? And this changes everything. And so the first thing he does, he says, to, you're, you're saved in this way. Um, but then something, let me say this is something you'll talk about in your community groups, but it's a question I can't get into because it's too long. But think about how many of you, all of us, all of us, all of us serve organizations that don't honor God. Nobody does, right? You work for a great nonprofit, there's selfishness there. They're hiding something. You work for a great big company that pays the bills, a really good one, a hospital. You work for a hospital that does so much good, but they're also assisting people in dying and doing gender reassignment surgeries, right? So how do you serve Pharaoh while honoring God? Is it possible to honor God and yet find the good work you're doing for God robbed of its goodness because these Pharaoh types are using it for the evil in the world? I can't discuss that question now. But what I can say is this, your job is to do the best you can to not work for places that are intentionally destroying God's good creation. However, you can rest knowing that like Daniel and Joseph, who did work for people who were not perfect, God didn't say, get out of the work, work to rule, do the bare minimum, Joseph. They say, God said, serve them really well, because you're accountable to God for your work. Pharaoh was accountable to God for his and so it doesn't mean you just turn a blind eye to what's happening in your workplace, but it does mean you don't have to feel the burden to transform McDonald's, because you can't. And so it's freeing, but I can't go into more, though I'm sure that raises all sorts of great discussions. Second thing, oh, masters. See, when Paul turns to masters and says, masters, you be just and fair, this people, like a master, know why would a master have to be just and fair to a slave? In the ancient world, the absurdity of that comment must have been laughable. And yet he does it. And he's saying, you must because you have a master. And you see what Paul's doing. Here's the great irony. He's not calling for an abolition of slavery. And yet, if people live out what he is saying, he's abolishing slavery. He's undermining the very roots of the slave system that say, you're, you're taken to only for your good. No, no, now masters, you must love these guys, serve them, and be just with them, which radically changes slavery. And then slaves, you don't, just, you don't just serve them out of fear. You now serve God and you serve them well because that's what you're doing for God. You see what he's done? He is abolishing slavery, slavery functionally, if not legally. And this undermine, this carbon monoxide that isn't smelt slowly ends up killing the slavery system. Is it slower than you would have preferred? 
Sure. Wouldn't we have loved it if the world changed and it didn't need William Wilberforce? But it did. But this is what the gospel does. It undermines all oppressive relationships, all of them, if we're faithful to actually live them out. So, I don't know where I am. Masters and slaves. That's the first one. That's how it transforms that. That's how the gospel does that when we look up. Next is husbands and wives. Oh, boy. Um, Listen to my sermon on, on marriage so I don't have to go through everything again about submission. But here's what I will say. Women... This is a hot-button issue, right? You say women submit today, and it's, you might as well just have the CBC in here with a crew, crew recording it, you know. But let me say one thing. It's, it's interesting. The Bible never, ever, 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 only our wedding vows for some reason, but New Testament never, ever uses the word obey and women side by side talking about what they should do to men. Never. Wives are never told to obey their husbands, ever. They are told to submit. And if you don't think there's a difference, let me explain it. There's two different Hebrew or Greek words here. They're compound words, which is two words stuck together, right? The first word is hip, H-Y-P, in, in our alphabet. And it means under. The second word for submission is tasso, which, so hippotasso hip, is what it means. And tasso means align yourself. So what it means, submission means align yourself under something. So in the military, I as a soldier would have to align myself under my captain's orders. Okay? I would have to do that. But, and it sounds like, isn't that the same as obedience? No, because obedience, which he uses in the passage to talk about children and slaves, because children you must obey, not, not wives, children. Obedience is hip, under, and the word akuo for acoustic, hearing. And what it means is you are to hear that word and get as if you're, as if you're under it. You're under what you're hearing, meaning it's a, it's a command. You're under the authority of that word. Women are never told, you must do what your husband say, ever in the New Testament, zero. But they are told to submit. And I can't, again, can't spend all day, but one of the biggest differences is this. To submit to something is to weigh all the evidence and then willingly do it. So what's beautiful about submission, and it's not just here, every human relationship works on submission. Everyone, I pay somebody something, I'm submitting. Every human relationship is this way. But women are being asked, in this case, to their husbands to say, let me weigh the information. What is my role? What is God calling me to do? And I will submit because he is Lord, so I'm submitting to him and not primarily my husband. And we'll talk about why that can be really hard because the husband isn't usually worthy, often not worthy of that. But that's what you're being called to do, willfully do it, not to force you to do it. And then, um, where am I here? So, and then let me move back to that in a second. Men are then told as a counterbalance, see, here's another thing the culture won't do. They'll take that submit part, but they'll just pretend like Paul doesn't give the men any instruction, which is ridiculous. But Paul is told here, and he expands in Ephesians 5 and says, you're to love your wife like Christ loves, which means sacrificially for their sake. And so think about a relationship where the man's first commitment is, to, how do I make my wife radiant? You know, I use that language a lot because that's what Paul says in Ephesians. How do I make her radiant? How do I lay down, like Christ, my self-interest for her sake? And that's my job as a man, make my family radiant and mature before God. If a man is committed to that, isn't he easy to submit to? And if a woman is submitting to that and helping him to do that because it's hard, isn't that easy for him to love her? And so what God is calling is for a relationship to be structured the way he says, but it can only happen if you understand Christ as Lord first. Otherwise, it won't work because what sin has done, and I shouldn't go into this because I don't want to take too long, but what sin has done in Genesis 3, something 
remarkable is happening. God says part of the curse of the fall is that, remember this, you all, if you're Christians, you know it. If you don't, you can Google it. It's, he says, women, uh, to the woman, he says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. What's interesting is the very next chapter, when speaking about Cain, he uses the exact same two words, desire and rule, and says, Cain, sin's desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now, when it's talking about Cain, what he's saying is sin's desire, that word, means it's, it wants to rob you of something. It wants to take, you, take something from you. And you have to wrench it into position. You have to crush it. Now, if you turn that to the woman he said, what God, and, and to the man and Adam and Eve, what he's saying is the sin has done this to you. The relationship should be this perfect submission and love. Love, submission, wrote beautiful. But sin has made it so that, and in no particular order because it's cyclical, but he's saying the woman's desire now because she's going to see a man who's rotten, the man who is often not interested in her but himself. And because she's going to see that, she's going to desire to take that role from him. He, he can't be trusted with the money. I'd own a kangaroo farm tomorrow. He can't be trusted with this. Look at him. He's so lazy or whatever. And as a result, the woman, the sin is going to say, usurp him. Take that job from him. You're more capable than he is. And then the, the rule over part, what's going to happen to the man? The man is going to be too weak to understand how to deal with a woman who isn't submitting. So what's he going to do? He's going to use his God-given strength and anger, and he's going to wrench her into position if he has to. And human relationships between men and women have been marred by this sin forever. And Paul's saying, until you could have laws about abuse and about roles in the household all you want, but until this relationship is right, and you know your job, men and women, it's never going to be right. You're going to have to keep making laws. How many laws are there in the Canadian legal code? I don't know. More than the 600 in the Old Testament. I know that. And it's because we can't fix human behavior, so we have to regulate it. Which is good, we have to try, but it's not the best. So, sorry, that was not at all in script. Parents and children, let me start here with the Andy Griffith Show. Who's old enough to know the Andy Griffith Show? I'm not that old, but my dad made me watch old shows. So, Andy Griffith Show, there's this one uh, episode, maybe you guys know it, where a drifter comes into town. I think he's played by Buddy Epson. See, I shows you how, like, how much I like old shows. Buddy shows up, and he's a drifter, and Opie, you know, Andy's son, falls for this drifter. He's like, ah, Dad, I want to be a drifter when I grow up. Like, I love this lifestyle, the freedom, you know, running on the rails. And the drifter, and Andy, of course, is like, that's never going to be you, son. And the drifter turns at one point to Andy and says, why don't you just let the boy choose for himself? Let him choose what life, life he wants for himself. He's a big boy. And Andy's response is old-fashioned but brilliant. You can't let a youngin decide for himself. He'll grab at the first flashy with shiny ribbons on it thing that he sees. It's difficult for him to tell the difference between right and wrong. When he finds out there's a hook in it, it's too late. The wrong kinds of things come packaged in such, so much glitter, it's hard to convince him that the other thing might be, a, might be better in the long run. All a parent can do is say, wait, trust me, and try to keep the temptation away. Pretty profound for the 1950s or whatever it was, but he's right. And this is what Paul is getting at. I mean, he's, this is all just taken from the gospel. Gospel came first. Paul's saying clearly, children, you must obey. Unlike the women. Women, submit. I want this to be a willing thing. Your whole mind and soul and part of it. Children, sorry, obey. And the reason is, you're not capable of making decisions. And I know that's hard. You don't love that. 
But it's not just this, right? It's not just kids obey. Paul then brilliantly, and God says, but parents, you cannot provoke your kids. And he picks out men specifically here. He says, pater. Some people try to make this gender neutral. I'm sorry. Pater is a man. Mater is a woman. It means men. Men, he's saying it to us. And the reason is, think about, and I can speak about this myself, because when you're a very strong-willed man, you know, you're a guy who, who, can, who can assert himself, you're a macho type of guy, what happens when you have a son who is not that way? It's difficult to raise them. So what do you do? You think that you're helping them by trying to make them a man. And so what you do, I'm doing is you provoke them. Rather than saying, who has God made this child, and how do I take this child and make them the best godly person I can, you instead try to make them in your own image. And so you then come to the pastor and say, how come my kid won't talk to me? How come he's not strong? How come he's not self-willed? And I say, because you've used your strength and self-will to break him. That's why. We must be careful. We're preciously called to raise these kids and to raise them well and to not provoke them because then they become discouraged, as Paul says. And so what's the right answer? Well, the right answer. Here's this. Kids must obey. And when they don't, and when the parent isn't parenting well, what ends up happening is the whole household is robbed of its joy. Because what you do as a parent when a child disobeys is you spend most of your time trying to reel them in, rein them in, rather than loving them, blessing them, caring for them, laughing, pouring into them. You end up just trying to hold this wild thing straight. And children, when you do that, you rob yourself of the benefit of being blessed and loved by your parent. And so disobedience is the surest sign in Scripture of the decay of a culture. Remember the book of Judges? We just did it. The decay of the family home was the decay of Israel and decay of everything afterwards. And so the tremors felt in the family are the shocks and the earthquakes found in society. And what you're seeing now, rightly so, let's get back to the laws. Parents are so often not good at raising their kids that we have to create laws to protect the children because we're abusing them sometimes. But you see what the culture has done? We have now inverted God's intent, and now the laws make it so that we must obey the child. And this is a problem because we have inverted everything. So now we have to obey the six years. It's funny, a, a baby, a little boy or a girl in this country, we would never think of allowing them to drive a car. They couldn't even choose their breakfast because they'll choose the wrong thing. We don't let them handle a knife because they can't be trusted, but they can assign their own gender and have surgery. I'm sorry, this is a problem. Regardless of where you sit on the gender question, that's not the issue. The issue is, should a child be allowed to have such power over themselves and others? No. No. But this is the way the world has moved, and we have to have this discussion, unfortunately. So, the relationships change when God is the one we're serving. When we see our children, our God's children given to us for a time, we love them, and that relationship changes. When, parent, when kids see they're, they're obeying God first and foremost, the relationship changes, and the house becomes much more joyful. So, Paul's saying, change the heart, and you'll change everything else. Let me close here. Last one is down. Here's the very, I always try to get as practical as I can. How can a wife submit to a man who is rotten and doesn't seem to deserve it? How can a man love a woman who refuses to ever, ever submit? How does a, a child obey a parent who is abusing them? How does a parent love a child who's obe obedient? How do you work for an employer who is unfair and unjust? And then how does an employer love and serve with fairness a worker who's just a mercenary there to collect a check and could care less? How? It's nice to say things, but how does it actually change? And this is where the gospel, and Paul here, 
drives us down on our knees to look at Christ. Because what we see when we look down is Jesus isn't just the one we serve. He is the motivation for why we serve and the power to be able to serve. And so we look at Jesus, what we see through the same filters is Jesus submitted to his Father on the cross. He submitted even to death to glorify his Father. So that's an example for us. He loves an imperfect bride. He loves you regardless of your mess. The way he, if he can submit to that and listen, not just to his Father, notice that Jesus submits to a cross, says Philippians, meaning he submits to you. He submitted to your will for his life to die on the cross. He submitted to imperfect people, and it wasn't a smack against his dignity. It didn't lower his value. In fact, it glorified his Father. And so you and I can actually submit to people who are less than, I'm doing air quotes for those listening, so, so they don't see it. Um, we can do that and think, how do I, it's a, it's a smack against my dignity as a modern woman to submit to my husband. If it isn't an assault on the dignity of Christ to submit, it's not an assault on yours. Simple. He loves a broken, imperfect, hateful bride. We can love people who disagree with us, even in our families. He serves us, though he is our master. He uses his power not to wrench us into position, but to save, restore, heal, and renew. And so the more you and I get to know Christ, which is why, Redeemer, we speak the way we do, we teach the way we do, we offer classes the way we do, is because the more you look at Christ and get to know him, the more you'll fall on your knees and look up and worship him. And that's the only motivation. Pride won't do it. Anger, guilt, none of it will make you the, the, the people Paul's describing. It's only the cross, only seeing that you deserve much worse than you deserve. Well, you deserve infinitely worse than you deserve, but Christ bore it for you. And so Christians, fall down, look up, and then start looking around to change your relationships through the gospel. Skeptics, if you're a skeptic here, everything I'm saying, you could disagree if you'd like, but I know you want your marriage to be better. I know you want your work to be more fulfilling. I know you wish you had a better connection with your children and that they were raised differently and that you were a better father or mother. I know it. But it's never going to happen until you look up and find the source of all those things, which is God in Christ. Let's pray.